just wanted to raise a question this morning and, and see if I could answer it. Uh, I'm probably better at raising the questions than answering them, as you've already discovered. <laughs> but who are the elect? And how does election work? Or the other word here is predestination. And what is involved, you know, do we have total free will? Or are our wills so corrupted that we cannot choose? So to understand the nature of salvation, I believe we must understand what biblical election or predestination means. And I do not, I don't mean this, I don't want to just simply oppose a problem, but I want this to be an encouragement. And I think that's the point of predestination, uh, is that uh, God's plans are being worked out in the world. All things are, you know, uh, for the good of those who love God and, and are called according to his purpose. And so I think the New Testament teaching on predestination is meant to be the, a great encouragement to us. Uh, this problem is a little bit mixed in with the narrow path and the picture of universal salvation. And, you know, we've talked about that it seems that there are these two pictures. And some would claim that those chosen for salvation have no part in the choice. They are predestined to be saved, and they do not exercise their will at all. Uh, this is a, a Calvinistic understanding, but it actually goes back to Augustine. Uh, and the way that it's captured in Calvinism is the acronym TULIP, uh, T-U-L-I-P. The T is total depravity. That is that people are uh, so depraved that they cannot choose. Unconditional election, uh, the idea that they're chosen, and it doesn't matter what they do or don't do. Limited atonement, that only some are chosen, for, you know, Christ only died for a few. Irresistible grace, if God chooses you, you can't say no. And then perseverance of the saint is, saints is the, the P in the tulip, that once saved, always saved, is the way that we, we hear this. And... Uh, there are many passages that describe predestination. And of course, I think this system, it, Calvinism is a very neat system that is, is a wonderful thing. It's just one thing. It has nothing to do with the New Testament. But other than that, it's a really good system. But there are passages that describe predestination. And... Uh, but let's listen to a few of them. And what we're hearing is very different from this Calvinist understanding. This is Romans eight twenty-eight to 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And of course, the picture here is one of... Uh, the, that it's uh, all things then are working together 
we can we can trust this because of this doctrine. He's predestined us to his adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Uh, according to the intention of his will is what Ephesians 5.11, one, rather 1.5 says. Also we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. And so he works all things after the counsel of his will. A very similar passage in Ephesians. And then let me read one more. This is 2 Thessalonians. But we should always give 2 Thessalonians 2.13 But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. So these passages are about God's plan for us. They don't really speak of some absence of the will on our point, but they point to God's good and perfect will in our lives. Now, there are these passages, and then, of course, you could. there are hundreds and hundreds of passages that talk about free will. But I think there is a, a false teaching, or there is a heretical teaching, about free will, in other words, I believe in free will, but what uh, Pelagius, and when I say Pelagius, uh, Pelagianism, actually he was a very early heretic in the church, and we really don't have any of his writings that remain. And so uh, what we know of Pelagianism is actually on the basis of what his enemies said. And so if my enemies are the only thing that you would know about me, uh, you know, Uh, I think that doesn't paint a very good picture. But he regarded the moral strength of man's will when it's disciplined through asceticism. And Pelagius, they say, was a Stoic. He thought that this discipline of the will is sufficient in itself to attain virtue on its own. And what then, you know, he's a Christian, but the value of Christ's redemption is limited to uh, instruction and to the model that Christ, you know, provides. Christ is a counterweight against Adam's wicked example. And so the nat- that nature retains the ability in our very natural situation, we can naturally conquer sin and gain eternal life even without the aid of grace. So I think that's wrong too, right? That's too much. So here we got one that's complete determinism on the part of God, the other that is completely free of the work of God. Um, I think scripture does not simply depict unaided free will as capable of attaining virtue. In those passages which depicts free will there is always a synergy with the work of God a mixture of the work of God with human will so let me this is 1 Corinthians 10 13 no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind and God is faithful he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear but when you are tempted he will provide a way out so that you can endure it. The picture is we're tempted. Uh, We can 
certainly choose. There's free will. That's important. But this free will is not acting alone, that God is there, you know, enduring and, and making it such that we can endure. Second Peter says something similar. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some have understood slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So God is pictured as patiently waiting on people to come to repentance. That is that they can do this thing. And certainly God calls them, but they also then are participants in this call when they recognize their sin and they repent. Galatians 5.13 gives us a picture of human freedom uh, that is fulfilled or complete only in Christ. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free. Get Galatians 5.13. But do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. So, you're called to be free. It's not that you have freedom prior to that calling, nor is it simply that you're totally lacking in the ability, even in Christ, to choose. So there's a clear picture of human freedom. And, but in, as in this passage, the freedom comes to its fullness. It emerges only completely. It uh, comes to its fullness only in Christ. You know, this is the teaching of Jesus. Look at, you know, Mark 8, 34. He called, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and says, whoever wants to be my disciple, you have to want this thing. You have to desire it. He must deny himself. You have to do this thing and take up your cross and follow me. So clearly our will, our choosing is at work. There's an effort, a discipline involved in being a follower of Christ. We can take up the cross or we can rebel. We can refuse Christ. Romans 13.2 says, Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. So the idea is not that we have no will or that God does not or, or, or God does all of the work in his will. Nor is it that we do all of the work through our will. So I think between Calvin's notion of double predestination, you know, in which people are kind of robots, and the idea of Pelagius or others of a fully developed human agency freely choosing is the biblical picture of humans emerging in their fullness only in and through the work of Christ. Uh, Michelangelo, and the, I'm going to tell a series of stories about Michelangelo, and these probably are not true stories, but they're traditions or things that have been told. Uh, he was working on a tomb for uh, an emperor, and in the, they, they ran out of money. In, in the midst of it. And so there is a, an incomplete work that he entitled Awakening Slave. And it appears that a human form is emerging from the stone. 
the slave is missing his head. And the stone itself seems to have imprisoned the man. Uh, now, I, this is what it looks like. I think he probably just didn't get to finish it. But actually, it just looks like this guy is trying to climb out of the stone and can't. In Genesis, the dust, you know, the, the Adama is the name of Adam, the earth man. Like the stone from whence the slave emerges, there is both the substance, you know, the, the dust is that which constrains him, but that's also what he's made of. And our tendency, you know, especially after sin, God says, from dust you were made and to dust you will return. Uh, that there is this constraining attempt to be human, I believe that is only completed in Christ. Romans 5 pictures Christ has reversed the direction of the first Adam returning to the dust and what was begun in the first Adam is completed in Christ this is Romans 5 17 to 18 for if by the transgression of the one death reigned through the one much more those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ So then, as through one transgression there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness there resulted justification to all men. And of course the picture here is that we were all once found in the first Adam, now we're all once found in the second Adam. It is not a limited atonement. You know, this is the, the tulip, the L in the tulip. It is for all that this is cosmic. At least it's for all who would receive it, right? All are given the opportunity. And as we discussed this morning, we may not comprehend exactly how and when that opportunity is given, but we're assured that it is. Jesus Christ, we might say, is the only elected individual. So here it is. What is predestination? Well, Jesus is the elected one. He is the predestined one. No other person, no no other individual is elected like Jesus. But in his elected election, his being chosen, humankind is saved. This is Acts 4.12. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. There is not light available outside of Christ. There is not apparently a back door. That all who come into salvation come through Christ. In Ephesians 1.4, just as he chose us in him, how are we chosen? We're chosen in him. He's the chosen one and we're found in him. We're chosen in him before the foundation of the world. And then 1 Corinthians 15, a very similar passage, includes that all are included in this election. 15.22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ will all be made alive. Um, So we could say the completion of Adam, the completion of uh, creation in a sense, creation of 
human beings is fulfilled in and through Christ. Even in Genesis, Adam is declared incomplete. Apart from Eve, right? But the one time God says this is not good, uh, and then Eve is brought, and of course we know Eve is a kind of foreshadowing of the church itself. The church will be called the bride of Christ. And so the new humanity uh, of the church, you know, represented in Eve, is found ultimately in Christ in the church. So the completion of man by the creation of woman, it means creation is open-ended. That it hasn't ended in Genesis 1. And there is this inner basis in which, you know, even the name Adam, it means humankind. It's all people. It's an ongoing realization, completed, I believe, in the second Adam. That's what Paul is picturing the emergence of the human capacity for bearing the image of God will be fulfilled in Christ. And Paul's picture is that it's an accomplished fact. Through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. Paul will say in another place, this gospel has been preached to all of creation. And of course, he's picturing something. It hadn't literally happened that way. But he's picturing something as accomplished, but at the same time he's picturing it as an unfolding process. Romans 5.19, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. It's an ongoing uh, process. So as with the, you know, we talked about the narrow path leading to salvation uh, on a universal scale, the process is is determined, it's predestined in Christ, but it's unfolded. And so there's a struggle. The the dust of death continues its infectious process. Paul says death is spreading to all men. But the counterforce of life abounds, he says. And he uses the word abounds again and again as an eternal irresistible force. John's gospel likens it to creation beginning again. In the beginning was the word. And then it pictures Christ's words from the cross. It is finished. And of course these are the words from the beginning of creation in Genesis. And the end of creation, it is finished. The gospel is presenting the life and the work, the death of Christ as the inauguration of this recreation commenced in Christ. And so John's depiction is that the darkness has no power you know, in this recreation to resist the light. Sin and death have no more power to resist life than you know, creation ex nihilo, God creates from out of nothing. In a sense, Paul says this world is null and void, but God from what is considered nothing makes an absolute something. God, you know, who can resist God's powerful word? From dust to dust then is the delimitation lifted at the cross, giving rise, you know, resurrection, to a new resurrected sort of humanity. They say, I don't know if you've ever seen Michelangelo's statue, David. It's a beautiful statue. And by the way, you know it's not King David, right? 
uh, it's just a beautiful guy. <laughs> uh, he, we know it's, it's uh, the, the man is not a Jew, he's not circumcised. But he, when he was asked uh, about the difficulties he must have had in sculpting this masterpiece, David, it's said that he replied, it's easy. You just chip away the stone that doesn't look like David. Uh, a new humanity is taking shape. You know, what's happening in the process of our life, in the process of history, uh, is we're being chipped away at, right? David's emerging. The image of Christ is emerging in us through the chipping away of salvation history. And with this chipping away, we're shedding the burden of sin and freedom dawns gradually. It's an emergent freedom. And so the vision of creation being completed is an unfolding process through Christ. And it does not give primacy to human choice or arbitrary sovereignty Uh, you know, the sovereignty of God, but it presumes the election of Christ before the foundation of the world, that it precedes the fall, not simply in time, but even in God's purpose. This is important here, because it's not that the sin or fall subverts God's purposes in creation. You know, the incarnation of Christ is not, oh, whoops, now that's happened. Now we need the incarnation as a backup plan. God had always intended to dwell with man, to take up residence with man, as he does in Christ. He's not, you know, played a game of dice with the universe and rolled the dice and said, let's see what happens. He's not gambled away the majority of souls burning in hell forever so as to gain those few who might find the narrow way. Nor is he due to his imponderable sovereignty in Calvinism, willing for the damned to suffer interminably, so that the redeemed might be arbitrarily chosen. This is the great, you know, I think, uh, uh, ugliness of Calvinism. He arbitrarily chooses some from heaven, for heaven, some for hell. God's election is complete. It's not a mystery. We can understand it. It's visible to us in Christ. Jesus is the subject and object of election. There's not two indiscriminate groups, the elect and the reprobate. Instead, there's one man who is the elected one. Listen to John 3:16 to 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. So he is an atonement, 1 John says, for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the whole cosmos. In Calvin's notion of predestination, you know, the double predestination. Uh, some are sent one way, and there's no human will. Uh, there, there is one particular scripture, and I want to, this is the last thing I want to deal with, that may seem to be saying this. And that's Romans 9, 
22 to 24. What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy known, which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. Calvin pointed at that text and said, see, double predestination. But we have to look at the context in the the discussion is about the role of Israel. And what Paul is preoccupied with is the problem the Messiah has come and so few of Israel have, been accept, have accepted Christ. And yet so many Gentiles outside the covenant have accepted Christ. And so what then of God's faithfulness to the promises, he asks? It's not an abstract question you know, regarding who's saved and who's damned. By the end of chapter 11, the saved proves to be vastly larger, even than the elect or the called, and the damned make no appearance at all. So it's a question about Israel and the church. And Paul arrives at an answer drawn from the logic of Hebrew scripture. We know, he says, that divine election is God's work alone. Not earned, but given. It's not by their merit that Gentile believers have been chosen. Romans 9.13, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. He's quoting Malachi here. And Jacob is a type of Israel and Esau is a type of Edom. His own words, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He has mercy Romans 9, 15 to 18. He has mercy on whom he will. He hardens whom he will. If you think this is unjust, Paul says, who are you, O man, to reproach God who made you? May not the potter cast his clay for purposes both high and low as he chooses? Rather than offering a solution here, Paul is simply restating the problem in its bleakest possible form, the very brink of despair. But instead of stopping here, he continues to question. He says, should we question God's justice? Guess what? Two chapters he does. (laughs) So he's explaining the justice of God. He spends two chapters unambiguously rejecting the idea of some provisional answer and he reaches a very different a far more glorious conclusion and this secret concerns not of that of man but of all men and the idea is Jacob is always part of Esau and Esau is part of Jacob and in the eternal moment of revelation there is Not the first Adam and the second Adam, but the first Adam is fulfilled in the second Adam. Romans 11.32 says, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience, 
so that he may have mercy, that he may be merciful to all. That's Paul's conclusion to the problem. Throughout the book of Genesis, this pattern of God's election, it's persistently over and against the law. You know, the law is the elder is chosen and the younger is made second. And again and again, the elder to whom the birthright belonged is supplanted by the younger. Think your Cain and Abel, Manasseh and Ephraim. It's a pattern not of exclusion and inclusion, but of a delay that widens the scope of election, taking in the other brother justly left out for the good of the brother unjustly elected. And this is the you know this is the story of Jacob and Joseph, and it's why Esau and Jacob provide uh, 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 the apt typology here for Paul. Esau is not finally rejected. In the story, the brothers are reconciled to the increase of both precisely because of this temporary arrangement. Jacob says to Esau, not the reverse, Jacob says to Esau, seeing your face is like seeing the face of God. There is no final division between the vessels of wrath and mercy. God has bound everyone over in disobedience so as to show mercy to everyone. 11.32 All are vessels of wrath so that all may be made vessels of mercy. But I believe this movement is found and fulfilled most completely in Christ, the elect, the predestined one, who widens out the mercy of God to all. It is not that Christ bears eternal wrath. The point is that the rejected one is the elect one. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, John says in 3.16, for the sins of the world. So Jesus is elected for all and rejected for all. Jesus is victor over all and has become the savior of the world. What happened in the death of Jesus did not happen against us. It happened for us. It was, you know, not an act of God's wrath against man. Our father has elected us to become his children. He wants to save and to draw us to him. Therefore, he has in the one Jesus written off, has him rejected, nailed to a cross, killed our old man, the first Adam, that the second Adam might displace him. Uh, This is Karl Barth. He's done this as impressively as he may dwell and spook about in us, that is the first Adam. This is not our true self. God so acted for our own sake. So the old man has been extinguished in the death of Jesus because you may no longer be this old man. Because your own case has been disposed of by the power of Jesus' death. uh, By the power of his love. That love by God, chosen by God, saved, accepted by him. Who has said to you and will say uh, to to him, yes. That the yes of God is known throughout creation. So the reign or rule of sin as it existed in Adam is undone. 
by Christ's death. And the Christian, as Paul says in Romans 8, 2, enters into this freedom. There is now no condemnation in Christ Jesus, for we have been set free. As I described it last week, this, uh, the, the, Paul depicts this freedom as realized through processes of purification. We live as punished, he says about himself, but not put to death. This punishment is not that of retribution, but of redemption, of training in righteousness. We learn to be free. We learn to be the second Adam. The judgment itself in 1 Corinthians 3 is depicted as purifying and refining. If any man's worked up, he, his work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So I've presented you two things here. Let me summarize it. There is the gospel, I believe, the good news. And then there's this other thing that is preached. In the gospel, God has elected Jesus alone. I think in the dystopian gospel, God made a horrible and absolute decree. Some are saved, some are damned. In the gospel, Jesus is rejected for all. He goes to the cross for all. In this dystopian gospel, some people are elected and the rest are rejected. In the gospel, Jesus is victor over all. And Jesus is proclaimed the savior of all the world. In the dystopian gospel, uh, Christians uh, tell non-Christians they are predestined to hell. Sorry. And no mention is made of Jesus. The story of Michelangelo, this is my last story here of Michelangelo. Uh, again, a probably an apocryphal story. But there's the, the beautiful, outside the same tomb, pic, uh, mosaic, a statue of Moses. And Michelangelo thought he had surpassed everything. In fact, the story goes that he, it seems so real and alive that he ordered it to speak. And seeing that it wouldn't, he got angry and he slammed his hammer down on the knee of the statue. And if you go and tour uh, and see the, the statue, the, the statue apparently has a nick on the knee. Uh, I think it may be something the tour guide made up. But um, it, Calvin's God would pound his creation forever for not coming fully alive. But the God of the New Testament is truly sovereign. He has called creation to fullness to come alive in the second Adam. And all of creation hears his voice. Let's sing.